Hello, everyone, and welcome to Homicide Hot Dish. I'm your host, Brittany. And now, usually, Deanna would be introducing herself here. However, we have changed things around a little bit. Deanna will be more of a special guest in some case episodes and in our second helping episodes. We've got more information on that on our Facebook page, so if you're interested in finding out more, feel free to check that out. I don't really want to take up too much time talking about it here. So now quickly on to our hot dish recipe. Now, I know some people will say this isn't a hot dish, but what really constitutes a hot dish anyway, right? So this recipe is my own personal spaghetti recipe. I know a lot of people just cook noodles, brown hamburger, and throw in some pasta sauce, and that's it. They just call it good. But I do a little bit more than that, and it doesn't take much longer. So check that out on our Facebook page, Homicide Hot Dish, if you want that recipe. And now on to the homicide. This is the murder of Debbie Gamma. In 1975, Debbie Gamma was a 16-year-old girl from Erie, Pennsylvania. She was about to enter her senior year at Strong Vincent High School, and everybody loved Debbie. She always had a smile on her face, she was very friendly, and she was a baton twirler in high school with her best friend Robin. And she was really good at it. She even got to light her batons on fire. Debbie was the oldest of five children. Her parents divorced in 1972, and her mom, Betty, married a man named Norm Ferguson. They became one big happy family, and everybody loved each other. However, their entire world was turned upside down on Friday, August 8, 1975, when Debbie went missing. According to an article put out by the Erie Daily Times, Debbie's mother Betty is interviewed and she recalls the events that led up to that tragic day that her daughter went missing. On Thursday, August 7, 1975, Debbie told her mother that she wanted to go shopping with her best friend Robin. But her mom says, no you're not, you have clothes to wash, it's your day to wash clothes, you can go shopping after. Debbie begs her mother to just let her skip the laundry and just go shopping. But, again, Betty says, nope, you can go after the laundry's done. After Debbie did the laundry, she was not happy with her mother, obviously, and the two had a few choice words, and then Debbie left to meet up with her friend Robin. That night, Norm, Betty, and Betty's other daughter, Michelle, went to a drive-in. And when they got home, Betty says she went to Debbie's room, and she saw that she was asleep in her bed. Now, that was the last time that she ever saw her daughter alive. The next day, Friday, August 8, 1975, it was a very hot, typical summer day in Erie. Kids are heading to the beach to try to keep cool. And on this day, Michelle, Debbie's 10-year-old sister who shares a room with her, sees Debbie for the very last time. According to an episode of The Lake Erie Murders, Michelle says she and Debbie were in their room and Debbie was trying on clothes. You know, when you have somewhere to go that you're really excited about and you want to find the perfect outfit, that seemed to be what Debbie was doing. Michelle asks her where she's going and she says, oh, I'm going to the beach. A little while later, the phone rings. Michelle answers and it's a male's voice. It's either a man or a boy. Michelle isn't sure, but it's definitely a male. He asks for Debbie, and Michelle hands the phone over. 
Debbie never says who was on the phone, and soon after, she leaves for the beach. A short time after she leaves, her mother, Betty, wakes up. According to an article in the Erie Daily Times, Betty and Norm were selling their house, and that day, Friday, the realtor was coming over. Betty had told Debbie to make sure that her room was picked up before the realtor came. So, when she woke up that Friday, again after Debbie had already left for the beach, she goes to Debbie's room and she sees that it's not clean as she had asked her to do. So, now Betty's upset with her for not cleaning her room and she ends up doing it herself. At this point, she's not sure where Debbie went. She just assumes she probably went to the beach, which was something that she frequently did with her best friend Robin. But Robin calls the house looking for Debbie. According to testimony from Robin that she shared in June of 2020, she says her and Debbie had planned to go to the beach that day. She called Debbie's house around 11.30 that morning and Debbie's sister Michelle answers. Robin asked if Debbie was there, but of course she wasn't. She had supposedly left for the beach already. Robin then asked to speak with Betty. Betty just basically says, oh, she probably went with another friend then. But this doesn't sit right with Robin because Debbie wouldn't go to the beach with anybody but her. The two girls were inseparable, so it didn't make sense that Debbie would have just gone without her. Soon the day is over and it's night, and there's no sign of Debbie. Her family isn't really alarmed at this point, though, because they just assume that she stayed at a friend's house. Remember, things have changed. This was 1975. If, you know, if a kid didn't come home, there wasn't really any concern right away like there is nowadays. But soon it's the next day, Saturday. Betty wakes up and Debbie still isn't home. The family had plans to go to an amusement park that day and they waited and waited and still no sign of Debbie. No phone call, nothing. Betty thinks, okay, this is her way of getting back at me for making her do the laundry before she went shopping with Robin. Now, the whole family starts getting upset with Debbie. I mean, all the kids are ready to go to the amusement park. Everybody's just waiting on Debbie. Betty ends up calling some of Debbie's friends to see if she's with any of them. But nobody's seen her. Betty then tells her husband, Norm, to go drive around and see if he can find her. At this point, everyone is kind of still assuming that she's just at a friend's house or something. And while Norm's driving around looking for Debbie, her mom is still at the house waiting. She's really kind of becoming irate at this point. I mean, Debbie didn't even call to say that she'd be late or anything, which is a little bit odd for her. During an interview for the Lake Erie Murders episode, Debbie's best friend Robin says it's really out of character for Debbie not to call. She always checks in. She was a good girl. Robin says she had a bad feeling all along that something had happened to Debbie. The family continues to wait for her so that they can go to the amusement park. But she doesn't show up that day, so the family ends up not going. Instead, they sit at home still waiting for her. Now their frustration is starting to change to concern. And another day goes by. Now it's Sunday, two days since Debbie's been missing. Norm continues to drive around looking for her, but nothing comes up. According to the Erie Daily Times, they even called hospitals looking for her, desperate to just know where she is. But again, nothing comes up. Betty is sitting all day by the phone, just waiting for a call from Debbie or one of her friends or somebody telling her where her daughter is. Betty's mother, Debbie's grandmother, even ends up calling the police. Now, as I said before, this is 1975. Things have changed since then. So the police tell Debbie's grandmother 
basically, oh, don't worry, kids do this sort of thing all the time, she'll eventually show up. But everybody says Debbie would have at least called by now, and yet another day goes by with no sign of Debbie. Now it's Monday, August 11th, three days since she's been missing. Betty is really beginning to panic. By this point, they've contacted absolutely everyone, and no one knows where Debbie is. According to the Lake Erie Murders episode, a couple hunters are out looking for woodchucks that evening in Cassawago Creek in Crawford County, which I believe is maybe about a half an hour or so from Erie. It's a remote area, not really anybody around, and they see something strange floating in the water, so they investigate, and they discover that it's a body. According to the Lake Erie Murders episode, Detectives John Martin and George Hooker got the call of a body being found. Detective Martin says, quote, The body was identified that of a young female. From being in the water for a long period of time, she was decomposed. No facial identification could be made, end quote. He goes on to say, quote, There was also some strands of wire wrapped around each wrist, around her neck, and around both ankles, end quote. The coroner had ruled this as death by asphyxiation because the wire was embedded so far into the neck and she had also been raped. According to an article by the Erie Daily Times, Betty recalls getting a phone call the following day, Tuesday, August 12th, which was four days after Debbie disappeared. She said Norm answered the phone and the person on the other line says, quote, You better not read the newspaper. They found a body at 9 o'clock Monday night in a creek. End quote. Now, I read somewhere that it may have been Robin's dad that called, and Robin, again, was Debbie's best friend. Betty says her and Norm kind of laughed and joke about it, and Betty says, that doesn't make any sense, that wouldn't happen to Debbie. They didn't take it seriously that it could really be her, but Betty says that there was just something in the back of her mind that didn't seem right. According to that same article, Betty says one of Debbie's friends calls the hospital, and they tell her that the body that was found had no cavities. Debbie also had no cavities. But still, Betty just didn't think that this was her daughter. She was told that the body was wearing jean shorts, and at this time, Betty says she knew what Debbie was wearing on Friday, and it wasn't jean shorts. Now, I'm not 100% sure how Betty knew what Debbie was wearing. I'm just kind of assuming that Michelle probably told her since it sounds like Michelle was the last one to see Debbie. So Betty feels some relief thinking the body can't be Debbie because she wasn't wearing jean shorts. However, later they found out that the body had actually been wearing clothes that were more similar in the description that Betty gave. On Thursday, August 14th, the police call. They want Norm to come down and identify the clothes found on the body to see if he would recognize them as belonging to Debbie. And I assume if he does recognize them, that they would ask him to then identify the body as well. In the same article, Betty says, quote, The next thing I remember, Norm was kneeling next to me. He didn't say anything. Nobody said anything. I started crying, still trying to breathe. I looked in his eyes and I knew it wasn't her that he was going to tell me it was her, they thought it was her, but it wasn't her, end quote. But it was Debbie. According to the Lake Erie Murders episode, Betty just couldn't believe it. She kept repeating, no, 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 no. This just can't be right. She couldn't believe that Debbie was dead. During the episode, Debbie's best friend Robin reads what I believe is something Debbie wrote in Robin's yearbook. She says, quote, 
So the end of school is here. Whoopee. We made it as best friends all this time, and I hope for a few more years at least. All I can say is it's been a real neat year, but it wouldn't have been if I didn't have a real neat best friend. Remember all the good times we had and all the dudes we met? I'd also like to say that you're about the best friend a girl could have. You're a best friend always, I hope. P.S. I hope we're BFs for a lot of years. End quote. Everyone's lives have just been turned upside down. Debbie's parents, her siblings, and her best friend Robin can't believe that this actually happened. So, now the investigation gets underway. So far, what detectives know after talking to family and friends is that Debbie told Michelle she was going to the beach that morning. They know that she was seen somewhere along 10th Street and Chestnut Street, which, according to Detective Hooker, is the usual way to the beach. And they know that Debbie got a call that morning from a male. Now, there was no caller ID or anything to rely on back then to see who was on the phone with Debbie. The only person that could possibly help detectives is her sister who answered the phone, Michelle. But unfortunately, Michelle can't tell them anything more than that it was a man or a boy that had called. So they have to kind of let that clue sit for a while. Police searched Debbie's house for other clues, anything that could lead them to this killer. Who would kill an innocent 16-year-old girl? While police searched the basement of Debbie's home, they found wire. Now remember, wire was found around Debbie's wrists, ankles, and her neck, which ultimately killed her. And guess what? The wire in the basement is the same type of wire that was found on her body. The wire belongs to Norm, Debbie's stepdad. Now they have their first suspect. And after Debbie left for the beach that day, Norm took the other kids to school. So, I mean, he could have been gone during the time that Debbie went missing and was killed. So things definitely aren't looking good for him. They end up sending Norm's wire and the wire from Debbie's body to the lab to undergo chemical analysis to see if they're a match. I'm sure you're thinking, it's a wire, how can it be a match? Because that's what I was thinking. Well, interesting thing about this type of wire is that it's a type of welding wire, which is why Norm had it, he's a welder. And everything that makes up this type of wire is all unique, like very similar to a fingerprint. There's no spool of this wire that is made up of the exact same elements and things as another. So it will either be a definite match or not a match at all. While they're waiting to get these results back, they're looking into Norm Moore. He's their only suspect right now, so they don't really have anything else to go on. And according to the Lake Erie Murders episode, they end up giving him a lie detector test. But the examiner ends up ruling the test as inconclusive. Now, after this lie detector test, Norm goes home to Betty. And Betty says Norm laid on the couch and cried because they think he killed Debbie. But now Betty is beginning to even question Norm as well. Maybe he did do it. I mean, is it really that much of a coincidence that he has the same type of wire that was used to kill Debbie? Now detectives are starting to run out of time in solving this case quickly. And there isn't really any proof linking Norm as the killer just yet. They're still waiting on the analysis of the wire. So they need to move on for now. They start to look at people who were close to Debbie, friends, ex-boyfriends. The police even gave her friends polygraphs. Since they didn't find any signs of a struggle on Debbie's body or anywhere, it was kind of assumed that it was somebody she knew who did this to her, somebody she was close with, someone she trusted. According to the Lake Erie Murders episode, detectives learn that Debbie has an ex-boyfriend named George Hardinsky. So they look into him. 
Now, Norm is still the number one suspect, but they still need to follow up with other leads. Now, Debbie is the one who called off her relationship with George, so detectives were thinking that maybe he got back at her. You know, like maybe he thought the typical, well, if I can't have you, no one can. Police find George and they go to speak with him. They search his vehicle and guess what they find? Blood. They send the blood in for testing, but it comes back that it's from a deer, so that crosses him off as a suspect. And they also get the analysis back on Norm's wire. And guess what? It's not a match. And it is later determined that Norm wasn't even involved anyway, so that crosses him off as a suspect as well. These were all the clues they had, so now it seems that they're at a dead end. The police told Betty that they have no more leads and they have no idea who did this. Betty now seems to really struggle with the reality that Debbie is gone, and now they're at a standstill in the investigation. Yet, she still tried to hold herself together and act as though everything was okay, but really, deep down, she isn't okay. She wants to, she needs to find Debbie's killer. And that's really the main thing, if not the only thing, that's keeping her going. She wants that answer. Who did this? A few months have gone by at this point, and as I said, the police are pretty much at a dead end right now. And Betty's getting frustrated and just wants to find the killer, so she hires a private investigator a few months after the murder. And the family puts an article in the paper offering a $3,000 reward for any information leading to the killer. According to the Lake Erie Murders episode, Dan Barber is the private investigator that Betty hires, and he creates a questionnaire for the family about Debbie's life in order to gain more information and to see if he can piece anything together. Now, one of the questions that he has is, who is Debbie's favorite teacher? And both Betty and Norm say, oh, that's an easy one, it's Raymond Payne. Betty recalls one time when Debbie came home from school. She says, Debbie said, quote, boy, you ain't gonna believe I got the coolest teacher this year. He's really cool, end quote. Debbie's best friend Robin says he was kind of sloppy. His shirts were always hanging out and baggy. He was a very cool and laid back teacher, so it seemed the students really liked him. Private investigator Dan Barber hopes that Raymond Payne can help him out with the case and give him some insight into Debbie's life at school. But just then, a new lead comes in out of left field. There's a burglary at a post office in the nearby town of Waterford, and the police find a suspect who is known as Hartman. Hartman is a 25-year-old man with an extensive criminal record. He tells police about another burglary that he had committed with an accomplice, and he says they were at a welding shop where they stole some spools of wire. Now, just for time reference, this is all going on about maybe 9 to 10 months or so after Debbie's murder, and Hartman's accomplice is a man named John Lascaris. He's a student at Strong Vincent High School, which is the same school that Debbie had attended, and he, just like Hartman, has an extensive criminal history, even though he's just a juvenile. And just like Debbie, he was also a former student of Debbie's favorite teacher, Raymond Payne. Raymond even suggested that he mentor John Lascaris to try to straighten him out a bit and to get him on the right path. John even lived with Raymond on his farm. But he continued to commit robberies and even used Raymond's pickup to move stolen goods. He sort of took advantage of Raymond and his laid-back demeanor. And according to the Lake Erie Murders episode, John Lascaris said, quote, I stole 30 spools and gave Payne two of them, end quote. 
talking about the spools of wire that he and Hartman stole. He says he sold the rest at a junkyard up in Niagara Falls. Well, detectives found the junkyard where he said the wire was sold, and the junkyard still had the wire, so they were able to confiscate it. They sent the wire in for analysis, just as they did Norm's wire, only this time it comes back a match. Bingo, now they're finally getting somewhere. It looks like Debbie's killer is either Hartman, John Lascaris, or maybe even her favorite teacher, Raymond Payne. Now at this time, Hartman was already in jail. Remember, they got him for the initial robbery at the post office. Detectives go after Lascaris and throw him in jail too. Now, I don't think at this point they gave Raymond Payne much thought, so private investigator Dan Barber continues his investigation in the case and he ends up coming across Raymond Payne's name again. He finds a shoebox in Debbie's house in her room, and in the box is a name tag that says Raymond Payne. Now, what is she doing with his name tag? According to the Lake Erie Murders episode, Raymond Payne was actually a classmate of Norm's, Debbie's stepfather, and there was a high school reunion about two weeks before Debbie was murdered. Norm, Betty, and Debbie all went to the high school reunion together, and Raymond also was there. The reunion was held at the Sheraton Inn, and Betty recalls being at the reunion and Debbie pointing out Raymond. She was all excited and couldn't believe that her favorite teacher was there too. Debbie ends up going swimming in the pool, and Raymond joins her. There's actually even video of him from a home video that Norm shot at the reunion, and after the reunion, Debbie took Raymond's name tag. Now, as I had mentioned early on, Debbie was a twirler in high school. She was a majorette in the color guard, which is the group that does that uh, synchronized spinning or the twirling of the batons along with the marching band. And Raymond Payne was a sponsor of the color guard. Robin, again, Debbie's best friend, says that Raymond was a flirt. He used to put his hand on them all the time at school. Now, mind you, again, this is 1975. Things were different then. If a male teacher put his hand on a female student's shoulder or something, it wasn't looked at as, like, creepy, kind of as it is today. Private investigator Barber is intrigued by Raymond's name tag, and he begins interviewing students and past students of Raymond's. Now, he doesn't want Raymond to become suspicious and find out that he's kind of on his radar, so he keeps these interviews on the down low for the time being. And during these interviews, he learns that Raymond was inviting students out to his farm all the time. There are even reports that he would smoke marijuana and drink alcohol with some of the students. After learning this, investigator Barbara decides that he needs to talk with Raymond himself. But again, he doesn't want Raymond to know that he's a suspect or anything, so... Barbara goes to the school to meet with Raymond and says that he's just there doing some basic interviews with Debbie's teachers, classmates, nothing to really worry about. But as soon as Barbara introduces himself and explains this, Raymond becomes visibly nervous. And the first thing he says is, I need to get my lawyer's permission before I can talk to you, which is a pretty big red flag. And according to the Lake Erie Murders episode, Barbara continues to dig further into Raymond Payne. And he finds out something pretty disturbing. Raymond had been fired from a previous teaching position. Part of the reason for him being fired included sexual misconduct with female students. So how was he allowed to continue being a teacher even after this? Well, the public education system allows for teachers to resign and then move on. They basically just want to get rid of them, just get them out of their school, which to me sounds kind of messed up, but this obviously made Raymond look even more like their number one suspect. 
Barber ends up tracking down more girls whose names appeared in the first initial students' testimonies. And at first, these girls don't want to talk with him, but eventually they do. Barber interviews several girls who had been with Raymond. Many of these girls said they had drank something that Raymond had given them, and they ended up unconscious for 24 hours or longer. One girl even said that she woke up and she was lying on the floor naked with ropes around her. Then he started taking pictures of her, but she was too scared to do anything, so she just pretended that she was still asleep. She said she was too scared to go to the police because she thought nobody would believe her over a teacher. After hearing all of this, Barbara ends up going to Norm and Betty's house to share this information with them. Now remember, at first, Norm was their prime suspect, so I can't even imagine how he felt after hearing all of this. And, I mean, Raymond was his old classmate and Debbie's favorite teacher. They were all at the same high school reunion together. According to the Lake Erie Murders episode, Betty says Norm said, quote, Ray Payne ruined my life, and now I gotta do what I gotta do. I'm gonna kill that son of a bitch, end quote. According to the Erie Daily Times, Betty says, quote, I was told who the suspect was, referring to Raymond, and I wanted him dead. People would talk to me about hitmen, and I thought, well, I don't know, maybe. I didn't know at the time my husband was thinking the same thing. Only my husband was going to do it himself. He left the house with a gun, didn't tell me, drove to Ray's house, laid in the weeds with Ray in his sight. Ray was on the roof, fixing the roof. He laid there for a long time. He didn't care if he went to jail. He just wanted him dead. As he was laying there, he realized that he couldn't kill anybody, so he put the gun down and went home, and wasn't to tell me about that for many years, end quote. According to that same article, Betty says even though Raymond was only a suspect at the time, she knew that he had done it. He was the one who took her daughter from her. She says, quote, There was a band marathon, Strong Vincent High School. I went down and Ray was playing an instrument in the band and I walked in the building and I just stood there. A little while later, Ray comes up and he says to Norm, Hi, where's Betty? And Norm said, She's right there. And I looked at him, and he disappeared into the crowd, and I knew, end quote. Now, as I stated before, Debbie's death was really hard on Betty. According to the Erie Daily Times, as soon as the investigation started, Betty says she, quote, lived for the police to come and tell me something. They actually became my life. My other four children were all young. Missy, being Michelle, was only 10. My oldest was 14. So every day I would sit in the black velvet chair and at 9 o'clock at night I would start drinking so I could sleep. It ran through my mind. Debbie, what happened? I needed to know. End quote. She goes on to say, quote, I wasn't cooking dinners, cleaning the house. I was obsessed with finding out who did it and what happened to her. I couldn't even think of memories of her when she used to twirl at the stadium. I'd go there and be so proud. I couldn't remember those times decomposed, decomposed, decomposed. The time when she got to twirl fire batons, I couldn't remember. Murdered, murdered, murdered. Those words were what was running through my mind, end quote. Before she knew it, it was Christmas, about four and a half months after Debbie's murder, and they still didn't have a suspect. She says, quote, I would drink broth because my throat was closed from crying all the time. I'd go to bed at night. My husband would hold me. I felt nothing. It was like being dead. He wanted me to get better, but I didn't know how, end quote. According to an article of the Erie Daily Times, Betty says two of her kids actually ended up flunking their entire grades. She says they were never able to recover after Debbie's death. 
They never graduated. Some of the children even started committing crimes. And at age 16, Betty's youngest daughter tried to commit suicide. She thought that Betty wanted her dead because Betty was just so obsessed with Debbie. Now back to Raymond Payne, who was 38 at the time Debbie was murdered. And again, Debbie was only 16. On September 23, 1976, 13 months after Debbie's murder, the district attorney issues an arrest warrant for Raymond after receiving all the information from private investigator Barber. In Raymond's barn, they find evidence of bondage, but they don't locate the wire that was on Debbie's body. The police end up bringing Raymond to the Meadville State Police Barracks where he was interrogated, and he surprisingly admits what happened. He says he picked Debbie up off the street and they both got stoned. He says that she consented to being photographed while tied up with rope in a nearby wooded area. He says he realized that he forgot his camera in his truck, so then he went back to get it while she was still tied up, and when he got back, she was dead. He says he got scared, so he took her back to his farm, and there he tied cement blocks to her arms, legs, and neck, and then submerged her body in his pond. But detectives didn't buy it. It was clear that he thought that they believed him, that it was just an accident, but they didn't believe what he was saying. However, they needed physical evidence to place Debbie at his farm, as he says that's where he took her after she had died. And they know just where to look, his pond. In his pond, detectives find cement blocks with wire still on them. And it's the same wire that Raymond got from Lascaris. Now, police have the physical evidence that they need to link him to Debbie's death. So here's what investigators believe really happened. After offering Debbie a ride, Raymond brought her to his farm. There, he drugged her, had sex with her, and then she woke up and probably started making noise and struggling. So he tries to keep her quiet and ends up strangling her with the wire. A day or two later, he sees that her body has surfaced in his pond. So he takes her out, cuts the cement blocks, and leaves them behind in the pond. And then he takes her body to Casawago Creek and drops her in the water. On September 23, 1976, over 13 months after Debbie was murdered, Raymond Payne is charged with killing her. Debbie's best friend Robin says, quote, I remember them coming to my house and telling me that Ray Payne was arrested for Debbie's murder, and I just broke down and sobbed because she trusted him, end quote. According to the opinion by Judge Braybander Jr., printed in the Erie County Legal Journal, on October 8, 1976, Raymond sat down with Donald E. Lewis, who was the assistant district attorney, and confessed to murdering Debbie and gives all the details. He says on Friday morning, August 8, 1975, which was the day Debbie went missing, he decided to drive around the peninsula with a new camera that he had and to take pictures of his wife. Now, up until this point, I didn't even know he had a wife and I never seen any mention of her anywhere else. So, while he's at the peninsula, he smokes marijuana and then stops for coffee. He also takes some meprobamate pills at this time. He then decided to drive by his old apartment that was on Raspberry Street around 11 o'clock or 11.30 in the morning. And that's when he sees Debbie standing on the corner of 10th and Raspberry. He says something seems to bother her, so he asks her. And she says, oh, nothing's wrong. She just says she's fine. He then asks if she wants to ride in his truck for a while, and she agrees and gets in. He says she asked for a piece of gum, and he said, oh, there's some in the glove compartment. When she opens the glove compartment, she sees the bottle of meprobamate pills, and she asks if she can have a couple. 
He says he tells her that he doesn't want her to take something that could hurt her, but still lets her take them. He stops at a building where there's a bathroom and tells her that she can wash down the pills in there. When she gets back, he continues to drive and he asks her if he could take bondage pictures of her. He says she kind of hesitated at first, so he explained to her what bondage was and that he wouldn't hurt her. She then agrees to the photo shoot, and after agreeing, he continues to drive, and he told her that they needed to go somewhere where people wouldn't see. He started driving toward the wooded park area, and on the way, he smoked more marijuana. He pulled into the wooded area and took out a blanket from his truck. He also took out some clothesline that he had purchased earlier that day. He says he walks about 20 yards from where he parked his truck and puts the blanket on the ground. He says he told Debbie that he wouldn't tie her if she felt tight. He says she was kind of giggling and it seemed that maybe the pills were having an effect on her. He then told her to get on her knees and he tied her hands together behind her back. He then tied her ankles together. He says, quote, Then I took the rope and I put it on one tree, around her neck twice, and on the ground and on the other tree but I left a lot of slack in it, end quote. He says he left a lot of slack so that if she fell, she wouldn't get hurt. He then realized that he forgot his camera and went back to his truck to get it. Well, at his truck, he smoked some more marijuana, and he says the camera didn't have film in it, so he ended up messing around with it for a little bit. And after that, he goes back to Debbie. He says, quote, And I went back, and I hadn't left enough slack. She had fallen forward. She was on the ground. Her face was all colored, end quote. He panicked and runs back to his truck to get a knife, comes back to her and cuts the rope and unwraps it. He checks for a heartbeat but doesn't find one. This is when he decided to hide things. He put Debbie's body in his truck and went to his farm. Here, he got the copper wire and cement blocks. He tied her body to the blocks and dumped her in his pond. He says on the following Monday morning, three days after she had died, he was afraid that her body might surface, so he checks his pond, and sure enough, it had. He walked into the pond to retrieve her body, and he cut the wire and left the cement blocks in the pond. He then drove her body to Cusawago Creek, which is about eight miles from his farm, and he says, quote, I put her in the creek, and I got out of there as fast as I could, end quote. He then threw some of her jewelry in the park where he had killed her and hid some more of it in the well on his property. He says he took her shoes off and originally got rid of them near the pond, but then he became worried and ended up hiding them in his woods. He also admitted that the wire he used could be found in the woods too. But he denies raping or having sexual intercourse with her. And according to the opinion by Judge Brabander Jr. in the Erie County Legal Journal, investigators did find Debbie's jewelry. It was either in a well or septic tank at his farm, and her shoes were buried on the land that was next to his farm, as was the spool of wire. But there wasn't any jewelry or clothesline rope or anything else found at the site where he says she died. And four cement blocks were found in his pond as well. On April 11, 1977, Raymond Payne had his trial. It was the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania versus Raymond Dale Payne. He pleaded guilty to a general charge in the murder of Debbie, and he left a degree of guilt up to the panel to decide. According to legal documents found on case law, Raymond had a cellmate in January and February of 1977. His cellmate was Anthony Lee Evans, and he says Raymond told him what had really happened to Debbie. According to Anthony, he says Raymond told him when Debbie was in his truck, 
he slipped some pills in her beer. And while she was under the influence of the drugs, he took her to that secluded wooded area where he tied her up and began having sex with her. He told Anthony that she begged for him to stop and she was crying and screaming, which made him angry. So he grabbed the rope on each side of her neck and pulled it until she died. Raymond then says he covered her body with leaves and left it there for several days until he decided where to get rid of it. He goes on to say that Raymond told him Debbie's death was a culmination of sexual fantasy that he had for a long time and that he, quote, likes to tie women up and do crazy things to them, end quote. Raymond's testimony pretty much matches up with what his cellmate said, except for one thing, how the death actually happened. Raymond says it was an accident. She died while he was at his truck getting his camera. Anthony says he told him he killed her while sexually attacking her. A chemist who was employed by the Pennsylvania State Police testified saying that he tested fluids found from Debbie's vaginal and anal areas. What he found was seminal acid phosphatase. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, he found this in both her vaginal and anal areas, and this is only found in semen. Raymond's degree of guilt hearing was about three months later on July 18, 1977. The panel consisted of three Erie County judges who were to decide his degree of guilt. The defense argued that Debbie's death was an accident and that his degree of guilt shouldn't be greater than third degree. They said that he was at most negligent and that he didn't mean for Debbie to die. Now, if convicted of third-degree murder, he would be given a chance at parole eventually. But if he is convicted of first-degree murder, it brings along a sentence of life without the possibility of parole. Now, for him to be convicted of first-degree murder, it must be proven that he intended to kill Debbie and that it wasn't an accident. And the prosecution argued that the presence of semen was proof of intent. The three-judge panel believed that his accidental death theory was bogus, and they felt that the testimony given by his cellmate was more consistent and that it lined up with the facts more. And they found him guilty of first-degree murder. At the end of the hearing, Raymond argued that this was third-degree murder, but the panel rejected his argument and he was still convicted of first-degree murder. And on August 5, 1977, he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He was 40 years old at that time. Now I want to go back to Debbie's mother, Betty. Remember I had said she had took Debbie's murder so hard? She started drinking, ignoring her other children and her husband, and she was in a, I guess you could say, depressive state. Betty had entered a contest. It was around April 2005, I believe. And the contest was called Story of My Life, which was held by Good Morning America. And a little bit about that quick. Three people, including Betty, were chosen as finalists, and the winner would have their book published. They'd receive $10,000 and go on a national 10-city publicity tour. And Betty, unfortunately, did not win, but she was obviously interviewed for the contest when becoming a finalist. And during the interview, Betty says she couldn't even bring herself to go to Debbie's funeral or the cemetery. And she soon turned to alcohol to help her cope. She started drinking very heavily, and she shut her family out. Now, even though Raymond got life without parole, Betty wanted more. She wanted him to suffer as much as she could make him. According to an article in the Erie Daily Times, Betty got a lawyer and she sued Raymond. She figured that this would be her way of getting revenge. Ray's criminal trial was the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania versus Raymond Payne. 
But this was a civil lawsuit that was Betty Ferguson versus Raymond Payne. And this was a civil court trial in 1983. And Betty says that she was afraid that Raymond wouldn't come up, that he didn't want to face her. During his criminal trial, he never once looked up at Betty. And this time he didn't want to come up, but they made him. So he sits at a table across from Betty in the courtroom. And Betty says she stared at him, but he never looked up at her. After the trial, Betty was awarded over $1.4 million. She thought that this would make her happy, that it would satisfy her. She made him hurt for what he had done. But it didn't make her happy. She still felt anger and pain. According to ABC News, Betty started to talk about forgiveness, forgiving Raymond Payne. She said, quote, Debbie died that day and I had to figure out how to live on earth without her. And the method I chose was to forgive Ray. I did it to save my family and myself, end quote. During her interview for the Story of My Life contest, Betty was asked how she could forgive the man who took her daughter's life. She says, quote, For 11 years, I stayed pissed off, hurt, and angry. The anger was running my life, and I took my anger everywhere I went, to bed with my husband, to work, shopping, everywhere. Damn him, damn him. Then I started to study what I was doing with my life. My children were angry, too. They were copying their mother. I started going to workshops on forgiveness, and I began looking at forgiveness as a possibility for saving my own life, end quote. She went on to say, quote, The whole world told me forgiveness was not an option, but I felt I had no other choice but to let go of being mad at Ray. Someone told me that if I ever wanted to have a peaceful heart, I would have to forgive him. When my sister died, I heard the Lord's Prayer at her funeral, and it said, Forgive those who trespass against you. I wanted to do it for me, end quote. And she did just that. When she first told her family that she wanted to forgive Raymond Payne, they couldn't believe it. How could she forgive the man that ruined their lives? She says that her children were upset with her when they found out that she was going to meet him. They didn't want her to forgive him. But in 1987, she wrote Raymond a letter. According to the Erie Daily Times, Betty says, quote, I wrote, Dear Ray, I've been thinking about it for a long time and I'd like to meet you looking through different eyes. I'm done being mad at you. If you'd let me, I'd like to visit you. And I signed my name, end quote. She got a letter back from Raymond and it said, quote, I'd be glad to meet you. I'm nervous, but I look forward to it, end quote. In May of 1987, Betty goes to meet Raymond, or Ray as she calls him. She says Norm wouldn't go with her, so she asked a friend to go along. They drove to the Western Penitentiary, where Ray was being held, and once inside, the guard told her to write the name of who she wanted to see, that person's number, and her relationship to them. So she writes Raymond Payne, she writes down his number, and then she writes friend. While she waited for him, she was in a room with other visitors, and there was a door with a glass window that the prisoners would come through to meet with their friend or their loved one, whoever was visiting them. So she's watching through the glass, waiting to see Raymond, and finally, here he comes. She says, quote, I saw him make the bend, our eyes locked, I looked in his eyes and he was looking in mine, and I just looked at him. It was like the weight of the world was off my shoulders. My heart felt pink and warm. We just looked at each other and I saw tears in his eyes as he got closer to the door. I opened my arms and said, Ray, and he said, Betty, and we hugged. I couldn't believe what happened. I cared about him. I wanted to know if he was okay. I wanted to know what he ate and if he had a blanket, what he did all day. 
We went outside to a picnic table and sat on the same side. I just stared at his eyes. Your eyes are blue. I couldn't believe his eyes were blue. He asked me if there was anything I wanted to know. And I said, well, where was she going that day? He didn't want to talk about it. I said, okay, end quote. Betty says they ended up talking for about three hours, and after the visit, she tells him that she'll come back to visit him again, and he says, quote, next time you come, I'll tell you, end quote. According to the Erie Daily Times, shortly after her first visit, Betty goes to meet with Ray again, but this time, Norm comes with. Betty says Norm gave Ray a hug, too. The two men talked about their class reunion and when they went to school together and played football, and Norm even tells Ray about the time he went to his house and was going to kill him. And Ray says, quote, I wish you did. Now remember when Betty left Ray at their first visit, he told her that at the next visit he would talk about what happened. Well, he does just that. Now, unfortunately, Betty doesn't share this information, what they discussed, and according to her interview for the Story of My Life contest, she says they are things that she has promised never to repeat. But she does say, quote, there's a lot of stuff that's controversial because he said one thing, the autopsy said one thing, the police said one thing, a lot of people said different things, end quote. Now back to Raymond and his sentencing. So again, he's convicted of first-degree murder in 1977, and he's sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. So he tries to appeal many times. I believe it's like five or more times, and he was denied each time. According to the opinion by Judge Braybrander Jr. in the Erie County Legal Journal, on September 26, 1989, Raymond applied for clemency. And in his clemency application, he told a little bit of a different story from what he had told on October 8th, 1976, which was when, again, he sat down with the assistant district attorney and confessed to murdering Debbie. He says Debbie was a, quote, beautiful friend and that he kind of made a deal with her. He said that he told her he would photograph her and then send the pictures to a professional photographer that he knew. And if the photographer liked what he saw, then Raymond would become Debbie's modeling agent. He says when he was with Debbie on the day she died, he had taken the meprobamate pills and smoked marijuana, as he had previously stated. He says he took one camera load of pictures of Debbie, and for the next camera load, he wanted to do a, quote, damsel in distress theme. He says Debbie agreed to this, and when he tied her up to take those pictures, he incautiously put a rope around her neck. He then went back to his truck to reload his camera, but his mind was somewhere else because of the drugs that he had taken, and he says it took him longer than it should have to load his camera. He says when he got back to her, she had fallen forward, and the rope tightened around her neck and killed her. He says he tried to revive her, but then he panicked when he couldn't, so he took off her jewelry to make it look like it was a robbery, and then he took her body to his farm where he put it in his pond. A few days later, he discovered that her body rose to the surface, so that's when he took her to Cusawago Creek and dumped her there. He says then he went back home and waited for the police to come for him. He didn't know that Debbie had never told anybody that she was meeting him that day. Then in 1991, he again applies for clemency. And again, his version of exactly what happened that day changes a little bit. He starts out by saying that he suggested many times to Debbie that she should be a model. At his high school reunion, where Debbie, Norm, and Betty all went, he says he and Debbie danced a lot together and he again suggested to her that she become a model. He tells her that he's got a professional photographer friend in Massachusetts and then he suggests that she let him take some photos of her to send to that friend. 
He says if the guy likes what he sees and thinks she's got potential, that he can be her manager. Raymond's got a lot of bills to pay, and this would help him stay on top of that if he would manage Debbie. So now he recounts what happened the day Debbie was killed. He says on the day he went to pick her up, he smoked some marijuana and took at least three of those meprobamate pills. When Debbie gets in his truck, she sees the pills and asks if she can have some too. So he stops somewhere with a restroom for her to get some water to swallow them. And after that, they drive to the wooded park area. And he smokes some more marijuana and noticed that the pills were starting to have an effect on him. And they also seem to have an effect on Debbie. Now, when they get to the wooded area, he says he takes some portrait pictures of her and then he suggests that damsel in distress theme. She agreed and he says, quote, I tied her up in such a way that she was kneeling and then very incautiously tied a rope around her neck. And although there was a lot of slack, ran the rope to two trees, end quote. He goes on to say, quote, I then went back to my truck to get another load of film. The truck was about 10 yards away from where she was. I had an awful lot of trouble loading the camera, and when I finally got it loaded, looked over to her and saw that she had fallen forward. I ran over to her and picked her off the ground, and her face was all black. I just fell apart and at first tried mouth to mouth, but got sick and threw up. I untied all the ropes, but I did not know what to do. All I remember then was total panic and confusion. Sometime later, I decided to make it look like she was robbed, so I removed her rings and jewelry. Then I changed my mind and decided to hide the body on my farm, so I put her in my truck. I finally decided to put the body in the pond. Several days later, her body rose up, and I panicked all over again and took the body to a creek, and left her in the creek. End quote. Now, something I want to point out is Raymond says he noticed that the pills that Debbie took were having an effect on her. But there were no pills found in Debbie's system, no trace of these drugs, so she never even took them. And I know you're probably thinking, well, it was a few days before they found her body. Maybe it was out of her system by then because that is the exact same thing I thought. But according to Dr. Eric Bay, who is the forensic pathologist with the Erie County Coroner's Office, he provided testimony saying that no drugs would have disappeared or metabolized between the time that Debbie disappeared and the time that her body was found. He also says that there's no evidence that alcohol played a role in her death. Now, another thing I want to talk about quickly is the whole modeling thing. So he claims that, you know, he suggested to Debbie many times that she should become a model. Well, if that's true, this is definitely something that she would have mentioned to her best friend, Robin. And according to the legal documents found in the Erie County Legal Journal, Robin says that Debbie never once mentioned anything about becoming a model. Robin even says she would be very surprised to hear that Debbie agreed to the bondage photo shoot. She was asked why she would be surprised about that. And she says, quote, she wasn't like that. She wouldn't have done that. She just wouldn't have, end quote. And if anybody would know Debbie, like I mean really know her, it would be her best friend. Now, after being denied clemency, and as I said, Raymond filed many appeals, and one of the times he filed for an appeal was in 1997. He filed an appeal requesting DNA testing. Now remember, they found semen on Debbie's body, and up until this very day, he had denied ever raping or having sexual intercourse with her. Now, DNA testing wasn't discovered until the 1980s, so it wasn't available in 1977 when he was first sentenced. However, the county and state courts denied him of this appeal. He also made similar requests in 2004 and 2012, but those were also denied. 
But then, in 2014, his luck changed. According to the opinion by Judge Brabander Jr., on December 16, 2014, the United States District Court permitted the DNA testing. And guess what was found? The semen? It wasn't a match to Raymond Payne. Once it was discovered that the semen didn't belong to him, Raymond filed another petition stating that he should get a new trial or degree of guilt hearing, but he is denied of this. According to GoErie.com, on December 26, 2018, Raymond wrote a letter to the Erie Times News. In it, he says, quote, Having just spent my 42nd Christmas in prison, it is now clear to me that the intention of the Commonwealth is to keep me in prison until I die, end quote. But on April 29, 2019, the Superior Court decided that he was entitled to a new degree of guilt hearing. They said that having this evidence back then when he was convicted would have likely changed the outcome of his trial. They determined that that three-panel judge had made an error when they put so much weight on the evidence of semen being found when they made their decision on the first-degree murder charge. After 43 years in prison at age 82, he finally got a new hearing thanks to that DNA technology. He was originally supposed to get a new degree of guilt hearing on March 24, 2020, hoping for a third-degree murder conviction instead. But what was happening in March of 2020? COVID. So it was moved to April 29, 2020, and then again moved to June 25th of 2020 when it finally took place. Now, if he is convicted of third-degree murder at this new hearing, he will be released. He's already served more than the maximum possible sentence for the crime, which back then it was 20 years when he was convicted, but now it's 40 years. Now, I know many of you are probably thinking what I was thinking at this point, that he'd be convicted of third-degree murder and let go. I mean, the semen wasn't his, he'd already served over 40 years in prison, and remember that three-panel judge in 1977 said that it was first-degree murder because the semen proved that he had raped her and intended to kill her, which again, you need to prove intent to kill for first-degree murder. According to GoErie.com, during the hearing on June 25, 2020, a forensic pathologist was called as a witness. And he argued that the DNA not matching Raymond didn't matter, that it was irrelevant to the case. He says the evidence still shows that Raymond was guilty of first-degree murder and that it didn't matter if he had sexually assaulted Debbie or not, it wouldn't change the outcome of the case. And Superior Court Judge Jacqueline O'Shogan wrote, quote, Appellant could have sexually assaulted the victim without leaving semen in or on the victim's body. The DNA evidence does not prove, as Appellant suggests, that he is innocent of first-degree murder. It does not even prove that he did not sexually assault the victim, end quote. And the judge agreed with the forensic pathologist and said that physical evidence, along with Raymond's 55-page confession from back in 1976, support the conclusion that he did intentionally strangle Debbie with the wire and then tried to dispose of her body in the creek. The evidence was all still there, even if the DNA doesn't match. The judge also pointed out that forensic analysis done in 1975 showed that there was never even a rope clothesline that was wrapped around her neck like he had said. There was absolutely no evidence proving that a rope clothesline was ever used. The judge found Raymond Payne guilty of first-degree murder again. And on August 12, 2020, 45 days to the day of Debbie's body being discovered, he was resentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. According to YourEerie.com, after his resentencing on August 12, 2020, 
Betty and Debbie's sister Michelle spoke with Raymond's brother Edward Payne. Betty says, quote, I'm so happy. I feel so free. This is the beginning of the end. He did it. He killed her. I have to face that, end quote. And we know that Betty has forgiven Raymond. She visited him multiple times in prison and speaks of him as a friend now and actually cares for him. But Debbie's sister Michelle has a little harder time with forgiving. She says, quote, I struggle with forgiveness. It's something that I want. Forgiveness has become not such a pretty word. I want peace and I won't stop until I have peace, end quote. Raymond's brother Edward thought the conviction would be for third degree murder this time instead of first degree again. He says, quote, I'll say something that I told Betty. Hang in there. Hang in there. If it can be solved, it will be solved, end quote. According to Betty's interview for the Story of My Life contest, she was asked if she thinks Raymond should be released from prison. And she says, quote, I don't support him getting in or out. It is not up to me to decide. I'm a mom. I learned a lot about Ray in the last few years. I even met his parents for dinner. Ray's mom and I were just two mothers who didn't like where our kids were. Hers in prison and mine in heaven. We remained friends until she died, end quote. Raymond Payne ended up dying in prison on November 25, 2020, at the age of 83. According to the coroner, he died of cardiorespiratory arrest due to COVID-19 and pneumonia. I don't think we'll ever truly know exactly what happened to Debbie. I think the only people who know that now are obviously Raymond Payne and Betty. Oh, and one last thing. Remember the DNA testing on the semen and how it wasn't a match to Raymond? Well, it has never been accounted for. It's never been found to be a match to anyone. So that's also something I think we'll never know. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Homicide Hot Dish. And as always, be sure to check out our Facebook page as we'll always have updates on there and when our next episode will be coming out.